It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 26, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Dan Kaplan. Dan has managed Brookfield Farm in Amherst, Massachusetts since 1994. Brookfield Farm was one of the first CSAs in the United States and currently supports 525 shares of produce during the summer, plus an additional 200 shares in the wintertime. Our conversation reflects on the growth of CSA and local foods from Brookfield Farm's founding in 1984 until now, including how Brookfield has embraced a contemporary way of looking at its CSA shares without losing the core of its CSA community. Dan reflects at length on shared risk and shared loss as the core value of the CSA concept, binding the producer and consumer in a way that no other marketing model does. We also discussed Dan's popular crop planning spreadsheets and his aspiration to time travel. This one really got at what the Farmer to Farmer podcast is all about. You couldn't get a workshop on something like this. This is really something that came out of a conversation and some deep feelings that Dan holds, deep convictions about where he thinks the CSA model stands apart from everything else. This was a fun interview for me, really challenged some of my thinking, and I think you're going to enjoy it just as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to get a word from our sponsors and then we'll get on with the show. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest in business management texts, farming essays, or if you've got a lot of tractor work to do, all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Dan Kaplan, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor, Dan. I mean, you're... I'm. I don't know if you if you know this, but you're one of those farmers that I've been looking up to for more than half of my farming career ever since I first saw you speak at a, I think it was an advanced organic market farming workshop that was put on in 1997 in Mellonville, New York. And, uh, and you were there and talked about, just talked about the, the, in particular, the way you were doing your CSA distribution was really inspirational to me. And you, you really dug in and tackled some stuff some interesting work about irrigation, just on kind of some real nuts and bolts basics that nobody else was covering at that time. And I was like, wow, wow this guy's really cool. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I've been sort of stalking you ever since, just so you know. <laughs> well, I can remember meeting you quite a few times and, uh, and, and the feeling is mutual, although it's always a little scary when somebody says they, uh, they, uh, they think something of me because, I don't know. Been making this up so long, it's hard to feel very confident doing what I'm doing. But uh, I feel we've been doing it a while. <laughs> Isn't that the case? The longer you do it, the less confident you feel. It does seem that way. That seems to be my 50th birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dan, tell us a little bit about Brookfield Farm uh, there in Amherst, Massachusetts. You're you're the farm manager, right? Not the farm owner. That's right. I'm the farm manager because the farm is owned by a nonprofit 501c3 corporation that was set up oh, way back in 1985-84. And it was set up by a couple named uh, Claire and Dave Fortier. And they had a dream that they would uh, they would create a farm that would be a... I think they thought of it as like an island or an oasis that would be something that people would be able to look to as a as a model for sustainable agriculture. And I think they also hope that it would be like a node of research and 
education for people using sustainable techniques. They were very interested in biodynamic agriculture. They had they were interested in all kinds of things that were related to Rudolf Steiner. They had helped to create the Waldorf School in Hadley, Massachusetts, nearby, and and they preserved this piece of land with the express purpose of trying to create a farm that would be you know, a model for sustainable agriculture. And um, I'm the second manager of Brookfield Farm. There's no owner. There's never been, there hasn't been an owner since Brookfield Farm became a 501c3 back in 85. And uh, I'm the second farmer coming after uh, Ian and Nikki Robb, who took it from just a blank field and turned it into the third CSA in the United States. And uh, I got there in 1994. And at that point, the CSA had about, I think, about 150 shareholders. And um, it was kind of in a transitional moment of, you know, as CSAs were sort of waking up and as organic food was waking up and there started to be some local competition and the original owners passed away. And I, I came in as, uh, as a manager to help Nikki Rob um, continue the farm on. She was in her, I believe, in her ninth year at the farm. And I came on at that point. I've been there since 1994. So in, in 1994, 150 CSA members, you guys had been, the farm had been operating as a CSA for how many years at that time? Well, I think the first year the farm took on CSA shareholders was 1986. It probably took on about 30 shareholders that were very connected probably to the Waldorf School. That was their, that was kind of their, their cultural base. And by the time 1994 turned around, they had somewhere around 150, 160 shareholders. And they were, you know, into the wider community at that point. They were probably cultivating about 10 acres of ground. And they had a small herd of beef cattle. And, um, and then at that point, other farms started uh, popping up around that started making CSAs. And they were probably, by the time, uh, 94 turned around. I, I think there were probably about, oh, I'm going to guess like 50 CSAs in the U.S., something along those lines. It was still pretty early in the whole thing, but uh, it was definitely the second wave when people were seeing this as a, a viable marketing technique and they weren't just like biodynamic purists getting into the whole thing and they were trying to figure out a way to make this into a living. You know, that's kind of where I came into the situation. And had you had a lot of farming experience before you took over management of the operation? I started, um, after I got out of college, I was a, I was a Chinese history major, which is obviously a, a of course. So, Good. yeah. Yeah. Puts me right in, <laughs> in line to become a, uh, an organic farmer. I, I decided that I would do some work in environmental issues. That, that seems to be the, the, the place where I wanted to put my energy. I don't know exactly why I chose that, but I think it had something to do with, being interested in things that would have more of a universal appeal as opposed to more of a parochial appeal. Unfortunately, I didn't have any science background. So um, I found myself on a, um, on a 4-H, 4-H ranch in California, uh, the Elkis 4-H ranch, where I was able to work for uh, a little stipend. And I didn't have any debt coming out of college, and I also didn't have any money. And so um, I found myself on this farm that was going to teach kids about environmental education using farming as their, as their basis. And I really enjoyed the education, but I really, really enjoyed the farm work. And, um, after that, I, I continued on towards environmental ed with farming as a background. I worked at the farm and wilderness camps in Plymouth, Vermont, and then I worked 
eventually at Caretaker Farm, one of the pioneering organic farms in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Uh, then I went back to Farm Wilderness Camps and became um, their vegetable grower for all their camps. And I met my wife. We got married, and we decided that we would pursue agriculture as a vocation. And um, before we settled down onto a farm, we wanted to go to we wanted to do a little traveling, figuring we would never travel again. So we went to Europe and tried to do some farm traveling, and went to Germany and England and. France and Switzerland and worked on farms and business farms. And when we came back, we found ourselves working at the Temple Wilton Community Farm, one of the original CSAs in the U.S. We were, yeah, we were there for a year. And then my wife had the great idea that maybe one of us should actually have a skill that made us some money, which I thought was, um, I thought was unnecessary, but, but quaint nonetheless. And she decided that uh, she would become a nurse and and I would just work at any farm nearby to the school that she found uh, to become a nurse. And so she went to UMass Amherst, and that's where I found Brookfield Farm. I just, well, Temple Wilton Farm was connected to Brookfield Farm. Both of them were biodynamic farms. Both of them were early adopters. Both of them were in the same kind of network. And um, the original farmers there had split up, and um, Nikki Rob was looking for a assistant manager. So I... I became their assistant manager. So I had about six or seven years of farm slash environmental education work under my belt before I got to Brookfield. And um, it was still kind of the Wild West. I mean, you could get a degree in sustainable agriculture at that point, maybe at Maine or something like that. It was a very, very rough idea. And there was still really no... Um, there was certified organic just starting, but it was really considered to be very out there. and and not really something that was a viable way to make a living. Uh, it was still considered to be pretty, pretty ridiculous. Well, and I remember looking for jobs on, on organic farms, you know, for something more than just an apprenticeship or an internship back in, I think it would have been 1997. And, and, just how little was was out there even then. I mean, this is yeah. not a what your your path was not a common path at that time to say I'm going to go no. work on an organic vegetable farm and actually make a living at it. Yeah, I mean, there was a great little publication that came out of the New England Small Farm Institute. It's called Willing Workers. It wasn't even Woof. It, it was like it was an American version of that. It was a it was something to do with apprenticeships, and I I remember there were about twelve options. And yeah. now when I, when I go on to like the Atra website, I'm just like blown away by how many, you know, the exponential growth in this whole thing is, it's really humbling. It's also really exciting. It's also, you know, it's, it's just a big part of what's going on, but we were very much in a very different um, environment than we're in right now. And, uh, you know, there was, it was a lot freer that nobody was paying attention to us. Um, but it was also very limited. You know, your options were very limited. And and certainly the idea that you were going to make a living at this was very ridiculous, especially to the people who were doing this at the time. They really didn't think they were going to make a living either. That was a really, that was almost a sellout idea. And we were just on that cusp of like the changeover from um, this is like, a back to the land hippie thing to this is like a possibility to make a living at. Um, so it was an interesting time, really vibrant time, I think, but uh, 
very off the radar time. Well, and I think about coming into a traditional CSA farm at that time. When I say traditional CSA, I assume you guys had things like a core group and and a and more of a community structure around the farm than what we oftentimes have in CSAs now, which is really I like to call them customer subscription agriculture. You know, where I'm <laughs> I'm sell. I mean, that's what my farm was. We we sold shares of vegetables. You pay me money, I give you vegetables. Right. I write a newsletter. That's pretty much the extent of our relationship. Um, I think yeah. if I remember right, Brookfield Farm had had a much richer community around it. Well, I think all the original farms had had a, a richer community around them in the sense that they were starting from scratch and they they were trying to create some affinity groups with people who hadn't really come together over anything yet. So they were, they were, they were trying to, to go onto a blank slate. It was interesting that when I got to Brookfield, well, it was interesting to me that when I got to Brookfield, it was already the end of the first wave. Brookfield had already been around for eight, nine years and a new farm had opened up in the Valley called the food bank farm. And they had a very different, um, rationale for being, and they also had a different scale of operation, and they pushed the market in a very different way than it had been pushed, and Brookfield found itself in a very big challenge before I even got there. So by the time I got there, they were um, you know, losing shareholders and having to argue about why their conception of their CSA was, was legitimate, given this new conception of a cheaper share of something that had a little bit less time commitment. Um, didn't require you to, or even think you were going to can vegetables or freeze vegetables or process them in any way. And so I represented a transitional moment for Brookfield. Um, how are they going to deal with this market challenge? And also for the original owners and the original founders, like how are they going to meld their original ideas into a marketplace that was shifting right before their eyes because of a competitive structure? And um, I think we've been able to, come up with an interesting hybrid where we haven't really lost our community feeling, but we have certainly embraced a modern or more contemporary way of looking at the shares. But my core group, when I got to the farm was fully burnt out. Like they had, they, they had already kind of, you know, struggled with how to keep their share and how to keep their farmers happy. And they were not quite, getting there and they were kind of tired. And so I gave them a, a different way of looking at things and gave them an alternative and they were ready to jump at it. And my model was much more based on a, on a management strategy where the manager would be the, be responsible for things and less where the community would be responsible for managing parts of this or even responsible for doing work. Um, I think for some people, this was really unpleasant and for other people, it was really, um, it was just what was happening and it was fine. And, um, so yeah, probably kind of a relief a, for some people. Yeah. For some people, definitely a relief. And and it was a struggle time. There was like, there were, there was some struggles for people about how to, so Brookfield was like, was a place in transition. So for places that are brand new coming into something, they, they have one set of, you know, constraints, but for places that are trying to transition, it's a whole different thing. And, um, I was the transitional figure for Brookfield from one of the original CSAs to becoming a more um, contemporary design. I still think that I 
represent a, a more traditional way of looking at things. And I, I think that's a good role that I like to play of trying to remind people about what the strengths of CSAs were to begin with and why they became popular. So as they get continually lost in the, in the jargon and, and when people basically try to take our brand and do whatever they want with it, um, it's important to know why it was such a strong brand to begin with. Why do people want to steal this brand anyway? Um, it's a really powerful impulse. And let's, let's talk about that because I think the, you've grown the farm a lot from 150 CSA members in 1994. I, I think you're up around, is it 575 CSA shares now? We sell uh, about 525 shares a year, regular shares. And then in the winter we sell another 200. And, uh, okay. but we, we grew from 150 some odd up to 400 in the, in the first seven or eight years, maybe five or six years. And then, we went to 500 by about um, 2002. So about within eight years, we've gone to about 500 some odd shares. And we stayed there except for um, adding this winter share. And that's been a number that I've been comfortable with, both from a standpoint of production and, and keeping our um, scale appropriate in terms of being able to use the tools that we have to actually make some money but also not get so big that I stop being able to do the two things that I've tried to carve out for myself as a person and as a farmer, which is production involved in the day-to-day production of the farm and training my apprentices in how to be a manager. So those two things I felt like if I had gotten any bigger, I would have lost at least one, if not both of those. And um, so we had a deliberate strategy to grow so that we would become efficient. And then we've tried to maintain a deliberate strategy to maintain. And it's been interesting. And I think it's been good, but it has its own set of issues involved in it. But um, I, I like the size that we're at. So when you talked earlier about those, those elements of a CSA that you're working hard to maintain, that now all of these other entities are trying to co-opt, whether, you know, whether it's a farm like mine trying to sell CSA shares that, that didn't really have the community aspect to them, or whether it's a, um, a home delivery service buying from a number of local farmers or even non-local farmers packaging in a box and calling it a CSA share. What do you think are the elements that, that kind of go back to the CSA roots that people are trying to tap into with that? Well, I have thought about this a lot and I, I talk about it a lot. I've written about it some because it's been such an interesting issue for the last five to 10 years as, you know, farms around me have developed CSAs and I mean, in really positive ways. I mean, I, I, I'm so blown away. The first time I ever went to a group of conventional farmers who wanted to start a CSA was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had that they, they wanted to take this idea and see how they could breathe life into their own farm. They had no intention of going organic. They had no intention of changing their practices, but they really, they love the idea of, well, they love the idea of being able to sell their product, but they also love the idea of connecting to their consumers. And, 
I've had this happen over and over again, but also in my little valley here. Now, I would say we sell, I think the numbers are something around 6,000 shares a year, which is a huge number considering we wow. only have about 100,000 people in this valley, 6,000 CSA shares. And some people will complain, some local growers will complain about the market is tapped out and, you know, oh, there's no market. And I just, I feel like that is just so short-sighted. Like, if we had thought in 1994 that we would be able to see 6,000 shares being sold in this valley, everyone would have said we were, we were absolute lunatics. UMass would have said that. Conventional Ag would have said that. There's no future in this. This has no future. There's no future of local growing. You might as well just start a turf farm and maybe sell ornamentals. That was all the options were there. So for me, right. the fact that the whole thing has grown is a real testament to the strength of this idea, but also to the strength of just what people can do when they decide that they want to do something that's a little different, that serves both the producer and the consumer. So for me, the bottom line with the CSA, why it was such a powerful and still remains such a powerful marketing tool is twofold. The first is that it's about shared risk. And this is one of the places that I have a really big problem with places that call themselves CSAs and don't share the risk. It's not only because it's not intrinsic to the concept, but it's also thinning out of the most important aspect of the concept. What shared risk does is it binds the consumer and the producer together into a unit that then becomes collaborators as opposed to um, or cooperators or whatever word you want to use as opposed to competitors. And this is the great, this is the great thing that happened with CSAs. This is where the capitalist market finds itself challenged. And, and that is that once farmers stop trying to trick the consumers into buying their produce <laughs> by whatever <laughs> means necessary, by right. either not spraying or spraying or not killing them or killing all the earthworms and, and also getting all the weeds out or leaving the problems for future generations or whatever, by whatever, once they are freed from that relationship of trickery, and, and there's really no other word for me, then the consumer is emboldened to care about what's going on. And the farmer is emboldened to actually think about farming, think about the things that really move them as a, as a person, as a creator. And we always, we always thought this was an interesting thing, but we were always warned that this would, this would be thin. This would be something that once someone can go into a store and get an organic product, they're never going to come back to your farm. And we were always worried about it. And it took us years and years of crop failures and then talking to our shareholders about these crop failures and then witnessing how they reacted to the crop failures to realize that like they were not looking for, and when I say they, I mean the vast middle or the, the majority, they were right. not, a hundred percent of your members, but no, a lot, no. of you, a lot of them, they were just not looking for a supermarket. They could go to a supermarket. The supermarket was there and we've learned early on, we were never going to be a supermarket and we didn't want to be a supermarket. And we also learned early on that when we said community, we were not going to be somebody's total community. We were not going to be like their church or we were not going to be the place that they did everything, but we were going to be a part of their community. And the part that we played, the really interesting part we played was a controlled experience of loss. 
<laughs> and this can only be explained by the fact that most of their lives, most of most consumers' lives in America is all about no loss. Double indemnity, can short up the wazoo, never lose anything. Walk into a supermarket any time of day, 24 hours, seven days a week, find anything you want all the time for no, with no problem. And, and with a money back guarantee. And with a money back guarantee. And it all sounds great. And it really is great. When you go into a supermarket, if you go in with fresh eyes, you really should just cry at how amazing it is that this food system can produce this. But it's a thin veneer. It's a mirage. And the mirage is, or let's say the overcompensation is the fact that that is not reality. That is a oil-fueled fantasy that is on the backs of somebody, obviously, and it's not going to last. It has no, no depth, and it's a very quick party, and it's going to be over well before, you know, 12 generations happen, that's for sure. It sure does feel good, and it sure is impressive, but it has... It's very thin. And everybody knows that reality is not like that. And reality, I mean nature and like the way the world really works and the world we live in. And I am not advocating, nor would I ever think about advocating, going back to a caveman world where we are just at the mercy of the elements and nine of our 10 children die before they're five and all these things I have no interest in. But the CSA is an ultra- compensation for an overcompensated world towards overinsurance. And that was what people wanted. That was what people were hungry for. That's what created a buy local movement. That's what created a CSA win-win situation for people. All of a sudden they're like, you know, my tomatoes get killed with a blight. I write a newsletter. I tell people, I'm really sorry. I did everything I could with these tomatoes. And then the late flight came and killed all of them. And now these 14-year-old boys who just put this trellis up are going out and cutting them down. And we're not going to have any tomatoes this year. And we feel terrible. And I get little emails back from people saying, oh, Dan, don't feel so bad. We're behind you. We're behind you 100%. That's what we joined for. We, we're here for the long haul. We'll get tomatoes next year. I, all these things that come back and you realize that, like, they want that. They want a different experience. and. So <laughs> to me, that's the, that's the, that's the real, the, the main thing about a CSA, the biggest, biggest, biggest thing is the shared risk and what that does for people. Now, obviously some people couldn't care less about that. And they'll just keep going to stores and stores will keep existing. And so will my farm. But that's been a really important thing for us to experience and an important thing for us to bring forth for other people to be inspired by and create. And this is where, when the brand uses the word CSA and then takes all risk out, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's really their problem. They're going to have problems down the line. They are never going to be able to do what they are saying they're going to do. It's always been the same story. People say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, um, I'm going to patch your boxes in a, in a custom way. So all you have to do is send me an internet listing and tell me exactly what you want and I'll just pack it exactly right. Those schemes never eventually work because people can't make money out of it. There's, you can't serve people with that much 
with that much service and charge this little money for it. You just can't do it. And if you charge them what it really costs you to do, then all of a sudden you're costing a lot more than a supermarket. And guess what? They're not interested either. So I don't think that that as a CSA is inspiring or built to last in any way. But I'm sure that nothing fails like success and people will continue to use the word CSA as long as it's popular and then do whatever they want with it. And that's okay too. I'm going to keep saying what I do and my farm will have its little niche until such point that it doesn't need to exist anymore. And then we'll do something else. But um, that to me is, is the number one, the number one issue, shared risk. If I see a, a farm that doesn't have shared risk, for instance, they, when they lose their tomatoes, they go out and buy tomatoes and then throw them in the box. I feel sorry for them personally. Those people are not going to last. They well, are never going to last. It's a huge blow when you do that. And I think, I almost think it's something that's incumbent on, on producers to, to be really clear with their customers that this is a shared risk venture. Uh, but I think it's also interesting when you talk about that shared risk, like where are the limits to, to shared risk? What's the risk that's reasonable to ask consumers to bear? You know, I mean, yeah. how, how does, I mean, how does a customer, I mean, well, Let's go back to 1997, and and here's Dan Kaplan talking about irrigation systems and laying out the you know different rates of pressure drop in two inch lay flat versus one and a half inch lay flat, <laughs> and and I think for a lot of the farmers in that room, and this was an advanced group of people. I think you weren't allowed to attend the the event unless you'd been farming for at least three years and had at least five acres in production, and still for a lot of them this information about irrigation was pretty, pretty new. I mean, this was really fundamental stuff. And I know there's a lot of CSA farms out there that are, uh, you know, they're undercapitalized. They don't have the kind, just to pick on that irrigation piece, they don't have the capacity to survive a drought year. Right. But that's not something that an average CSA member or prospective CSA member is able to evaluate on the, on the front end. I mean, I think most people don't understand that vegetables are made out of water. Um, <laughs> and, and so how, how do you balance out that shared risk? I mean, even something like losing your tomatoes, um, how many times should you spray them with copper sulfate before you say, I lost my tomatoes to late bright? Right. Right. And these are all such, I, those are such interesting questions. And I think they've been with us a while and they stay with us because you know, farming has a history in the United States of being non-organized. So like any attempt at making a standard for farmers, a farmer's <laughs> union or an organic farmer is like, imagine if we were like, we had the, uh, you know, the bar association for farmers and we had like, you know, you, 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 even as a thought experiment, you realize how impossible it is because, you know, part of farming's allure and part of its, you know, just history is that, it's the wild west. It's, it's one person and their experience with the natural world and how to coax food out of it. And so we resist any attempt to codify what we do. And so by definition, any term we use, whether it be CSA or certified organic, they're always going to be fraught with, with problems because they cut against this idea of, of the independent farmer, which is so important in our psyche for producers and for consumers. But I will say, say that I had no mercy 
no mercy whatsoever for farmers who don't figure out a way to succeed and then cry about it and complain about the marketplace not meeting them or them not being able to make the marketplace or their land isn't good enough. Like there are certain constraints built into this marketplace, whether it be money or whether it be, um, you know, what land will produce, how many bushels per acre and how you're going to get into it or how much you have to capitalize a farm that you have to, you can't just, I don't think you can just be all by yourself out there and just say like, well, we're just going to give everybody 40 pounds of kale a week and they better like it because it's nutritious. Like if you don't meet the marketplace where they are, which is both from a nutritional standpoint, a psychological standpoint, an economic standpoint, if you don't meet them where they are and create a product that they both value, can afford, and really yearn after, then as an entrepreneur, which you are, you have a problem and you have to fix it. And if you don't fix it, then that's your problem. And I've always said that, you know, when you go out of business in America, no one cares. No one cares at all. It's your responsibility as a, as a business owner to care and to do the right thing. And so you need yeah. to do the things you need to do to get an edge. And I would have no mercy or no sympathy for another farmer who says, well, I tried to make it on two acres and I can't because you sell your produce for cheaper because you use mechanical cultivation and you have flat land. And I'll say, well, I apologize, but that's just what we can do. And you have to, you have to meet the market where it is that it is competitive marketplace. It's not, it's not a vacuum. That being said, I think there's still a certain amount of, uh, I think there's still room for a person to have ethics and standards and, and, um, bottom lines and, and concepts that I think are important. But I also think it's just, <laughs> it's, it's common sense or it's, um, you know, if you go ahead and, and try to, and try to market your farm as a CSA and you don't have shared risk, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're, you're telling people that, you know, you have a really great tool at your advantage, which is this idea of shared risk. And instead of using it, you're going out and just buying some more tomatoes and just constantly feeding this thing. It's not a very smart choice. You're just going to continue to like feed people's imagination that they can get something for nothing. Which well, and even if, have, I think even if you don't have that situation where you have to buy the buy the tomatoes for your for your farm, you even I mean, even then you're still I and like what you said. I mean, you're 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 selling yourself short. And, and it was, I mean, when I look back at my farm, um, it's one of the things that I think we really missed the boat on was not, not working on that community aspect and that shared risk aspect, because when we had flood years, um, and we had divorce years there, there wasn't a whole lot of understanding. There wasn't a whole lot of ability to communicate effectively about that because we hadn't really built the basis for people to understand that, that things were beyond our control. And we were failing at, right. at certain things. And, right. and so there was a few people were like, well, gee, there's nothing in the box. And I'm like, yeah, that's a, you know, 18 inches <laughs> of rain will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, it's but, like, it's going to happen. 
we didn't have that basis. And, and I actually remember the year that we had the, the first 18 inch, uh, 24 hour rainfall event that we had in 2007, we didn't go right to our members. It actually wasn't our first instinct. Our first instinct was how do we try to, how do, how do we try to make this all work without letting them know just how messed up things are right now? <laughs> right. I think that's really backwards if you've got a CSA. Well, that's what I think is, is it's such a resource for you. And I mean, I resist certain things. My wife is always telling me, you know, I'll come, I'll come in and complain that, oh, my carrots are so weedy. And she's like, you should put out an email and get people to come out and weed. And I, that never appeals to me. I think mostly because I hate facing them with a failure of my own management. And I always feel like that's my own management. Like I couldn't even weed my silly carrots. So I don't like bringing them out there to see like, Oh, look how bad I grew carrots or something like that. But, you know, I do think that the resource that our community gives us is incredible. I mean, I have multiple shareholders who are 20 year shareholders uh, and not more like tens, twenties, hundreds of shareholders who've been, I have shareholders who's, who've raised their kids at the farm and now their kids have kids and they're, they'll send me $5 for my annual plan. There's a huge ground swell of support for our farm that we can tap into if we really have an emergency. And I think that they really, they love this connection they have to this farm. I mean, one of the things is that we didn't own our farm. We don't own our farm. And it's been a really, we always thought that was going to be a terrible idea. But, and something that we would never do. Like, we need to buy a farm. How can we be secure? And in the end, this has been a real help to us as not being able, not owning this farm. It's a really congruent idea for people. It's like, oh, that's Brookfield Farm. That's this place down in South Amherst that I've been a part of. Oh, Dan Evans would be the grower. He's the steward for this thing. But he, he's not going to pass this on to his kids when he's done. This isn't his place that he's, you know, making money off of. This is like a community resource and my neighbors eat here and my kids ate here. And it, it's, it's, incre- it's, it's beyond humbling. Sometimes it's a little ridiculous, but it, it is a really amazing thing to be a part of that. And it has come without any necessity for people to do work shares or that was never our conception of community. Um, it was more just, let's tell you what's going on here at this farm. This is what's actually happening. And we think that if you find out what's happening, you will support the actuality so that you get the actual output. And there'll be some interest in that. Now, is part of that that you've got people coming to the farm on a regular basis to pick up their shares? Yes. So there's always been about 70% of our shareholders have picked up right on the farm. So we live in an area that has a lot of people right around it. Um, and we, well, and you, the, if I remember right, you don't even live on your farm. You're one of those people that lives right, right. around the farm, right? I live across the street from the farm, right? Through a little okay. wooded path. And the farmhouse is not owned by the farm. It, it's owned by, you know, we own our own farmhouse. That's the only thing we really own. And um, no one sees it when they come to the farm. They don't see a farmhouse. They just see the barn. And so it feels like nobody's place and somebody's place and everyone's place, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, we've, uh, we've never lived on the farms. 
So you were saying about 70% of your people, uh, your shareholders come and pick up at the farm. Right. And then the other 30% pick up in the Boston area, which we've set up distribution sites for remote distribution. And that's had its own different characteristic. We did that originally because people asked us in Boston to come out there and do that. And then we thought, well, as long as they're um, coming and picking up the produce, we can deliver it. And then we created more sites based on more people. And that eventually ballooned to about 180 shareholders. And now it's kind of dwindled. And that's that's the lowest growth area of our farm operation at this point. The, the on-farm thing remains very, very strong. The Boston area thing, I think, is struggling a little bit because I don't think, well, I think that that market is really dominated by non-shared risk CSAs. And we just don't, we, we just don't have the, you know, we don't sell the things that other people do. We're just not willing to do the things that people do. and. Um, we might have to eventually, or we might just give it up. I'm not sure. I, I think that the people who remain our shareholders in Boston um, feel connected to us, but it's a different thing when you only get a box and you don't come out to the farm and bring your kids and pick blueberries and pick your basil and walk around the farm with your dog and bring your neighbors. I mean, we have a real community event, not even a community, just a real family event, a real relational event that happens three times a week on the farm. I think that's important to people. I think one of the interesting things about doing that weekly pickup on the farm is that it's, it's almost a non-event. I mean, I don't, when I go to the, when I go to the grocery store, that's not an event. That's just, (laughs) it's part of, it's right. It's just part of my life going, taking my daughter's soccer practice. That's just part of my life. Um, I think, I think when you have people who come to the farm on a regular rhythmic basis, you know, and I know that's that's a big thing in in biodynamics and Waldorf is that that idea of of establishing those rhythms. But I think yeah. suddenly it just becomes normal. It becomes part of it becomes part of you and part of what you do, rather than this thing that stands outside. And we could never get we we were two and a half hours away from most of our customers, and we All could right. never even get people to the farm. You know, and I yeah. think that was something where again we just we got the rhythm around picking up the boxes, but that was picking up the boxes. That wasn't. Yeah coming to the farm and being a part of what was happening on the farm and, you know, seeing Chris's management failures or, you know, seeing Chris's (laughs) management successes uh, for for that matter, you know, it was all kind of, you know, know, it's all trying to put it in black and white on a newsletter just wasn't the same. Right. And I think that, you know, my environmental education background kind of warned me up to this idea of of the power that, you know, being part of a growing process, even if it was just witnessing it, you know, it was really strong and, and it was really strong for people with kids. Um, you know, people let themselves experience something once they have, once they have kids and, you know, I, our bread and butter, most of our shareholders are just people with kids people who are going to cook every, every day. But people also want to do things with their kids. And I would agree that, um, the majority of people just, have woven this experience into their lives and they just know that this is what they're going to do every year. And it is kind of really cool to see the new people come in every year and, you know, maybe 50% of them are going to stick around or, or maybe even less. And you can see the ones that get really jazzed and they're just like, Oh my God, I've never picked a bean, you know, and it still is really fresh for people and just so, 
exciting. And, you know, that's always been, that's always been energizing for me to be able to see that and to be able to give that to people. And, um, I, I feel like it's difficult as a farmer. I mean, it's a great blessing that we have that there's so many people around. I don't know what I would do. I'm sure it would be different if I lived two and a half hours from my market. This is the farm I ended up on and this is the reality I, I dealt with. But I still, even to this day, have a real approach avoidance relationship with my shareholders. Like, you do all this work and then all of a sudden these people come onto the farm and, and then now they're walking down the rows and they're going to pick some basil and, you know, some of them are going to do it wrong or they're going to step on the dill or, <laughs> and you really have to just like give over to it that it's really not your farm anymore. And this is, you cannot control them. And this is, this is an exploration for them. And this is really their farm. And we say that all the time as a way of building that. And we want them to believe that, but it hurts a little bit every time we say it. Like, you know, we spend so much time on the farm. We, we sacrifice so much of our personal lives to make this happen. And then people just come out and they just pick whenever they want. And like, if they happen to be picking beans, when I really want to go mow the old arugula next to the beans, and I'm not going to mow a bush hog, like right next to a six year old, as much as right. I wanted to scream, like, get out of here. And it's Saturday afternoon. And I'm just like, and I just turn around and I just go somewhere else. And I realize, like, well, that's just, you know, find another time. That's, this is their farm. You just gave it to them. And, uh, so it's a constant, you know, it, it is a big process of like, of, of giving things and, and then, and then letting go. And, uh, it's been super rewarding, but, um, it's not, it's not, it's always, uh, um, it's a process. It's definitely a process. <laughs> it has its ups and downs. You know, having people around all the time is, you know, you can't really hide things around. You, you got you to well, yeah, I mean, If your carrots are weedy, they're weedy. You know, there's, there's no, there's no yeah. secrets there. Yeah. No, no. It has been humbling, so, but yeah. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about um, not asking for your members help or not asking for your members to pay the consequences of a failure of your own management. You referred to this in terms of if you had weedy carrots, that that's, that's something you did. You should have gotten them <laughs> cultivated. You didn't do that. You don't want to drag them in and make them pay the consequences of that. I think that's actually a really interesting concept to build this shared risk around uh, or this shared risk concept around because you're really saying, I mean, the, the, I mean, it does require you to have a certain amount of, of competence. It requires you to have a certain amount of equipment and even a certain amount of the right kind of land for growing vegetables before you're willing to ask people to share that risk. But once you've got all of those things in place and you've got the management expertise to do it, the risk that they're sharing is is really, I think, different than what than what a lot of of the younger, newer CSAs are actually asking people to share. You know, and I think it's, it feels to me like it's a lot more meaningful when you're asking people to, to share the risks that don't have to do with your management or don't have to do with your undercapitalization or don't have to do with trying to grow vegetables on a, on a clay hillside rather than on land that actually works for vegetables. I, I really like that. Yeah. Well, I think that the central, you know, CSAs were started by biodynamic farmers. And the central idea for biodynamic farmers, why they created CSAs, what the impulse was, what the insight was, was, you know, Rudolf Steiner's general idea that 
agriculture needs to create an economy. The economy can't create agriculture. And that's a really simple thing to say and a really important point. Like We've seen the results of when uh, we let our economy create our agriculture. When we when we just try to nickel and dime ourselves to the most efficient, the most efficient, most efficient, and eventually just replace any good stewardship with whatever lie you can tell people, so that you, in the present, make money, but in the future you've left with a, with a soil bank that has no life to it and no life giving abilities. So the 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 nut is to turn that on its head and say like, what we need is a strong agriculture. And from that agriculture, an agriculture that's built to last and built on the fundamentals of nature, which is diversity, resilience, overproduction, and to then create our economy based on that, to let that agricultural flourish so that we can actually have a society that's resilient and sustainable. And so I think it would be, it's it's a it's it doesn't follow from that to then say oh what we need is like people just going out there and not knowing anything about agriculture and finding people to just support them economically while they figure it out like that just that is not the point i think it's really important that before you ask people to support you that you are expert that you are at least competent but even expert would be good you know, the Bob Dylan song, whatever which one it was that has the line, you know, I'll know my song well before I start singing, I think is a a really <laughs> important point. Like, I would never have wanted to be a CSA grower before I knew how to grow lettuce 24-7 and just could do it every time. You know, like, that's just, to me, that would be asking too much. But then you get to this next level where there's just things that are guaranteed to be beyond our control. And that's the nut with agriculture and the environment are the things that are beyond your control. When you try to, con- when, when we as a species have tried to control the things that we really can't control, that's when we've gotten ourselves into trouble. We, we always forget that when you do that, you make, un- you open Pandora's box. You, you don't know you are, but you do something else that nature has a balancing act. So when you, when you go ahead and do that kind of thing, and you just, <laughs> you try to take that out of the equation. You always create another problem for yourself down the line. You, know, you can see that in, in resistance in bugs to pesticides, all those kind of things. And it's, it's very basic. But that's what we're asking people to support and say, like, instead of just making this no risk and trying to get us to try to figure out how to make this no risk, which would obviously be a veneer, a fake, a fraud, now we're going to say, like, we need to come to a come to a certain understanding that some of these things cannot be controlled. When you get 18 inches of rain, you got 18 inches of rain. You, you can't do anything about that. You can't. And people do ask me things like that. It's funny. I say, well, can you do anything about that? Can you build a bubble over the farm? And they really <laughs> ask that. They really ask that. And I think they've become. You know, I think whatever it is, we believe technology will get us out of whatever fix we have, whatever problem, whatever thing leads us to believe that. Yeah. That's where, that's where we come together as a community to like, and this is as Americans, a really difficult thing for us. And this is where it's, it's not just shared risk, it's shared loss. (laughs) And as an older person than I was when I was younger, it's about like, 
sometimes you're going to lose things. Sometimes you're going to, you're going to be in pain. Sometimes things are going to die. And, and this is what we don't like as Americans. We don't like death. We don't like loss. We try to do everything we can to get rid of that. And that is, that is our downfall. That is our Achilles heel. And we know that. We all deeply know that, which is why we joined CSA. <laughs> we want a controlled experience of that. And boy, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole political line that you could <laughs> run down there. Um, wow. Yeah. And it's deep and that's where it hits people very deep. And, and you know, this whole farming thing, I got into it because it was an adventure. It was an exciting adventure, but quickly I found out that it holds a really deep place in American psyches, this whole farming idea, this whole food idea. And we've really witnessed this in the last 20 years, how much of a important part of people's lives this has become in a weird way. And it's, it's just part of, it's, it's part of what makes us really American. It's part of what makes us human. I think also, no, I'm just convinced that the CSA has, has brought these two things together, this kind of iconic um, human beings related to nature and creating their own sustenance and also coming to terms with the fact that, you know, you can't engineer your way out of death. You, you just can't. You, you have it's to. interesting to me that you talk about, you know, farming as an adventure, because in a lot of ways, that's really what adventure is all about. It's all about yeah. risk and it's all about the potential for failure. Um, Absolutely. You know, you know, that's, you know, when, when, when we, when Hillary climbed Everest, it, it, it was not without risk. Uh, and Absolutely. it was full, full knowing that that might not work. Yeah. So then the original and the American myth or ethos is, is the adventure of the man or the woman against all odds or whatever. And now this is the adventure of, it turns out, uh, the, you know, the adventure of trying to come to terms with a communal experience, which is so different. And I'm sure why everyone said CSAs would never work. They've been saying CSAs aren't going to work forever because it just doesn't seem like Americans would do this. Why would they pay money for things that they're not going to get? <laughs> <laughs> why would okay. they buy futures in something that's not going to give them a huge dividend? I mean, even if, even if we hit the jackpot as a CSA, what do you get? 10 extra pounds of tomatoes? Like, you're not that good. <laughs> you can't eat anymore. You, you get a fruit fly outbreak on your, in your kitchen, right? That's, that's your I bonus. Think, I think they get to sat. I think what we get is the satisfaction of doing something and, and, and having it work. And it's exciting. Yeah. Dan, we're going to stop here for a moment for a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont's Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean really great transplants, year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. 
post. I love that their Fort VMix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent, fantastic product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I've been a fan of spoken word media for as long as I can remember. I just love listening to ideas and stories, and I love the fact that I can listen while I'm getting something physical done. I've spent years of tractor time plugged into selections from Audible when I couldn't always make the time to read, and I love listening while I'm on the road regardless of whether I'm doing deliveries or driving to visit a client. And it's so easy now that you probably carry an iDevice or Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from. I usually go for long ones, but I want to mention one short and powerful title that you can get for free with your trial. The One Minute Manager provides a suite of incredibly powerful personnel management tools that you can put to use right away on your farm. While the story it tells is based in the office, the tools for setting expectations praising and reprimanding are right on in any setting just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free audiobook download so dan i'd like to i'd like to take a hard right turn here and i mean having talked a lot about csa and the philosophy of csa how do you live that out on your farm let's talk about some of the production things that you're doing um to encourage that diversity and that resilience in your, in your own soil system there on the farm? Well, um, you know, fundamentally our production system has been based on a connection between animal agriculture and, and horticulture and creating, um, spaces where animals can, um, graze areas that were, were vegetable land and then using, animal manures to create compost and then using that compost for our vegetable production. We think that that has been a really important part of um, just from a production standpoint of building a healthy soil and once we build a healthy soil, hopefully creating healthy plants. Um, On top of that, you know, just growing all these different crops and um, trying to be somewhat um, experimental in terms of varieties, but you know, realizing that when we're growing 65, 70 different crops, if you're going to grow two or three varieties of each one, you're already getting up to a number that's becoming difficult to do. So I think fundamentally sticking with a, with a, a very organic approach, a very biodynamic approach of mixing animals and, and horticulture, and then trying to come up with, you know, realistic solutions to the diverse farm so that we can manage the variables that are out there. So by that, I mean, like we really try to make sure that, um, we have very specific, um, crop targets that we are yield yield targets that we're trying to meet for our shares. We try not to overproduce for these shares so that we, you know, create this monster share that we have to then chase our tail for the rest of, time, you know, to try to come up with something that we can duplicate. And we try to, um, not, um, over harvest. So if if people don't want any more kale, we don't try to 
ram it down their throats or, you know, pick a bunch and, and, and try to sell it. We just incorporate it back into our soil. So we try to, we try to come up with a, a nice mid ground between, I think between, um, our ideals and also planning and being concise with what we're doing and hitting these targets and being satisfied with hitting the targets and making them realistic targets. I think that's a, that's been a really important, uh, practice that we've really tried to do. So we do a lot of crop planning and then we do a lot of record keeping. We've done this for a long time and, and we really try to not overdo it on anything. Um, both in our yield estimators or in our actuality of what we put in that box um, or what we put on the the stand, how big a volume will let people take. Okay. So when you're, when you're doing that planning and that yield basis, you said you're, that's based on actual yields on your farm then that you've, you've generated that data over the years. Yeah. We started with a really um, conservative yield estimator based on, you know, what Johnny said we could get on 100 feet and what Fedco said we can get on 100 feet. And then um, we created this simple spreadsheet that would say, well, you can get this on one foot. And then we would use our records over the years and, and analyze it. And then whatever number we got, and let's say we thought we could, you know, reasonably harvest three quarters of a pound of beets off of a foot of row, then we would immediately take 20% off of that and estimate that we would only harvest, you know, 0.6 pounds of peeps on a row. So that we were not like trying to constantly chase the, you know, the best year, but we were just going to estimate on an average year, figuring that farming was the ultimate occupation where, well, it's like baseball. Like farming and baseball are totally same game. If you if you hit thirty percent of your crops, like really hit them, you've had a great year. You've had a <laughs> great year. <laughs> if you put some good wood on that on that ball, uh, and, and it's still gotten out, but you you know you put good wood on it for like sixty percent of them, you're doing good. You're doing really good. You know if you get thirty percent of your of your crops just are 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 out, well, you know just like whiffed. And that's average, pretty average. So, you know, our yield estimators are all, all always 20% off the top. And, um, okay. that's worked out well for us. And that's probably provided a really good basis for you to plan out your growth as well as the, as the farm was increasing in size. And as you were looking to sell more CSA shares. Definitely. It definitely really helped. It was really, it was a math problem, but it was just a math problem. You know, we, we could reduce it to a math problem and the math problem worked. You know, you just, it, it's all about record keeping and planning and doing them both every year. Um, and it doesn't have to, you know, we never, we, we tried really hard not to overindulge our sense of data analysis and our sense of data collection. We really wanted to make it manageable. So we never figured out like, well, what does this bed of cauliflower produce? And what does this one row of carrots produce? We aggregated it all. We, what did we produce in carrots for the year? You know, what is that? What did we harvest today in terms of lugs? Okay, we did six lugs, and each lug weighs 40 pounds, approximately. That's 240 
multiply it out by the end of the year, you know, okay, we did 10,000 pounds of carrots and how many row feet? Well, we did this many. So what's our yield? So that was also an important thing. I'm just realizing like how much data there was to collect out here, even if we did it that way and to be happy with estimating. Estimating has been so important. And, uh, and then I think it's one of those places where people let people let getting things exact actually get in the way of getting something that's good enough. Yeah. You know, people yeah, I mean, are like, well, if, if, I, if it's just an estimate, then the value, you know, there, there's, it's got limited value, but I always feel like an estimate's better than, it's certainly better than no data. Um, yeah. You know, to have well, something I think that's trends, trends are more important to me than, yes. than anything. And, and it well, and, and like you say, no data. So if you, if you shoot too high and you, and you can't collect any data, then you've really lost, you know, the, uh, one one guy who was a, was a seed guy, he said he had a line that I really liked. I think it was the, the analyzed variable improves. I thought that was great. Very succinct. Yeah. The analyzed variable improves. And that's all we want to do. We just want to like do a little better every year at what we're doing. The longer we can stay in business, the better we will be at being in business. And the easier it's going to be to be in business and then it's going to be easier to succeed. So let's just keep surviving. And yeah, the, the yield. So yeah, we've definitely been big subscribers to the idea that, um, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. That's, well, I think it's one of the really interesting things that you went and did then with the planning tools that you've got, because you've got this in some ways, very elaborate way of, and I, I don't know if this is still the tool that you're using, but you used to even, I think you actually sold this record keeping system or this, this planning system that you had. So somebody could buy the spreadsheets that had all the formulas in them and basically the instructions for laying things out in this spreadsheet, copying and pasting it to the next spreadsheet, sorting it this way, copying and pasting it to the next spreadsheet. And I always you know, there, there was a part of me that was like, whoa, that's, that's really clunky. But there was also a part that I looked at and went, wow, that's, that's really elegant because you can lose a lot when you try to get to that, that next level of planning. You know, when you try to get to something that's the, the, the one massive database that does absolutely everything that you need it to do, yeah. you know, where I, I always thought I, I loved how yours was just as, it was a pretty basic, I mean, it not, yeah. It was as simple, it was as complex as it needed to be, I guess, to yeah. get the job well, done. And it's an interesting process because I still do use this tool. I still sell this tool. I only sold it because people wanted it and because I used it. And I don't thought I sold it for $25 just so people would understand that, like, you know, it's not free. Nothing was free. And, like, yeah, if you give me a little bit of money, it'll help me do something else. I've had many people um, take my request of like turning this into a database and a really big, you know, very graphically interesting thing. I've seen some really great examples. You know, the Ag Squared people talk to me. Um, they have a really cool tool. There's this guy up in Vermont who showed me one last year that's based on the iPhone and has pictures associated with it. And all of them are really cool. They all have used my spreadsheets as a basis. And what they all like about my little spreadsheets is that they can see the logic behind it and that it's a very simple little piece of logic. It's just like, okay, 
I have X number of people I want to feed. I want to feed them these crops. I want to figure out how many weeks I give them these crops. And these crops can grow this much in this much row feet. And this much row feet goes into this many beds. And this many beds goes into this many acres. So how many acres of carrots do I need to grow in order to sell 500 boxes of CSA shares 26 weeks or something along those lines? And it, it always has had like a real downside to it that you know, there's this copy-paste thing. There's so many room, places for room for errors. But what it's helped me do is help me like concentrate on it for one week during the winter and just organize my thoughts and really think about it. And what's really weird about it is that 20 years later, I still sell 50 of them a year. Like there's really? a new 50 people who decide they're going to put $25 into that. And maybe they're also going to do ag squared and maybe they're also going to do something else. But this is like, just like something it's pretty easy to get into. Like if you get into ag squared, they have a great mapping tool. It's an amazing mapping tool. They have some great features to it. And then at some point I said, well, where's your seed calculator? Like, I mean, I say I want to grow, you know, 10,000 rows, 10,000 feet of carrots. Like how many pounds of carrots? And I go, oh, we're going to put that in next year. <laughs> I was like, really? There's no seed calculator in there? Well, I do, you know, I, I do some database design. Um, it's something I kind of fell into on accident because I needed it uh, yeah. when I was when I was managing presenters at the at the Moses conference. But it is the thing about a database and especially anything that's made for somebody other than the designer to use is that right. it takes time to implement stuff. And I think it's one of the <laughs> things that's really elegant about a spreadsheet solution is, you know, well, God, if I want a seed calculator, I build a seed calculator. <laughs> you know, I write, I write a couple of if then statements and add in a couple of multiple <laughs> multiplication signs. And if I, if I know how to read and write Excel, I'm, yeah. I can build that myself. And it's, right. it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not as flashy and it's not as sexy, but it, I mean, it really is powerful in its simplicity. And I, I love the way, I don't know, you know, I, I, I was asked to do a section on, on crop planning, uh, in a class that I was teaching recently. And, and I, it, I, I kind of went back to those spreadsheets cause that's how we started off with our crop planning on our farm. And I realized, you know, it, it really isn't all that hard. It's if you boil it down <laughs> to the map it's a pretty straightforward process. You know, right. when do I right. want to pick it? If I want to pick it here, I need to plant it here. If I right. want to plant it here, when do I need to seed it in the greenhouse? You know, how yep. much do I need to grow? You know, all of those things are, are pretty basic and really most of it's coming up with the information, which if you do it for a couple of years on your farm, you've got pretty good, pretty good data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, and yeah. I always thought that one of my greatest contributions to the uh, farming world was just, um, <laughs> showing people just how much you could do with this little bit of information and this little bit of knowledge to start with. Like, yeah, we actually ran the entire farm with addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Couple of parentheses and that's it. And like, you know, that's one of the things that's been so, you know, useful or helpful or exciting to me about all the people that have come and worked for me is that like so many of them have never either used tractors or 
they've, they feel uncomfortable with spreadsheets or they don't know how to read a financial statement. And I'm able to say to them, look, when I started, I never read a financial spreadsheet. I never read a financial statement. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I actually still could look at my balance sheet and tell you three lines that I don't even understand what they mean, even though the accountant tells me what they mean every year. And all you need to know <laughs> is how to multiply and divide and you're going to be fine. Order of operations. And, you know, to peel back this stuff and empower people to just use their use those things they learned in seventh grade has been really positive for me. And, you know, you can go a long way. I, I, I love the expert stuff. I love all these databases that I see. And I still get people who want to just get down to the bare bones, I think, and just, just build it themselves. And, and yeah, I, I went to one conference where everyone was just like, it was really cool. It's like a farmer to farmer breakout session. Like everybody show your spreadsheet. They were so cool. They were just all over the place. And everybody had these really great ideas and really creative thinking. And they're really powerful little tools. They're really powerful. It's like a great eraser. Yeah. You can just change it up and build some scenarios for yourself. Yeah. You know, that's, that is the other thing with the spreadsheet is there's always that save as possibility and go exactly. and try something different. Yeah. Oh, what if I, oh, I didn't make any money doing 300 shares. Let me just plug in 400 shares. Let me see how that looks. Oh, that's much better. Oh, right. 400 shares. <laughs> I wonder where I'm going to get that extra three acres of land. Huh. Well, that's another problem. Huh? <laughs> that's great. That's great. All right. So Dan, I, I think now it's, it's time for us to move on to the, to the, what we call the lightning round here. The questions that we'd like to ask everybody that's on the show and we're actually going to, we're actually going to start with a new question though. Does you and I were talking before the, before I pushed the record button, uh, you were talking about farmer superpowers. And so <laughs> If you could choose, a, if, if you had a superpower on your farm, what, what farmer superpower would you choose, Dan? Well, now we play this game on our farm a lot. You don't necessarily, I've never said like, if I was a farmer, what would my superpower would be? But I've always thought like, if I was just, if I just had any superpower, what it would be. And for me, I always choose time travel because I'm so fascinated and interested for how people's thinking changes and how things feel over time. I, I've always liked history, but I, I just think it would be just so interesting to be able to like put myself in different points in time in history or even in the future and just be able to experience it. So I would go with time travel, my favorite superpower. All right. And your favorite tool on the farm, Dan? Well, my favorite tool on the farm um, I like all those tools that are both destructive and creative at the same time. I love the really destructive tools that, um, clean things up. So a bush hog or a flail mower is probably one of my favorite tools because it wipes clean all your, all your problems, all your mistakes, all your strivings that didn't come to fruition and gives you back to that blank slate. And also makes things much more likely to break down and become, you know, back back around the wheel. So likewise, a manure spreader is the same thing for me, especially I, I make a lot of compost with my manure spreader. Same thing where you just beat up organic matter and just 
grind it up and just make yourself some compost. To me, those are the, the most exciting farming tools. I love it. I love it. Um, what about your favorite crop to grow? Um, well, let's see. My favorite, I would say there's two ways to answer that question. One of my favorite crops to grow is strawberries because um, I, I, I can do almost anything out on my farm and my soil is really ready to grow strawberries. Like nine out of 10 years, I have great strawberries and it seems like I can just do anything and they just come up roses. And when people experience strawberries, I always thought when people have CSAs and they don't have strawberries, they're really missing an opportunity because somebody once told me that the strawberries for the Native Americans was called the heartberries and they open up people's hearts. They, they let people mm. experience joy. And when we always say, oh, we have a great strawberry crop that people just, I mean, they act silly to the point of like just being in love with everything. Oh my God, these strawberries are so amazing. The farm is so great. Like everybody's in such a great mood during a great strawberry season. I just, <laughs> they're just so happy, almost to the point of silly. Like you almost want to videotape them so you can show them later what they did when they, uh, when they got your strawberries. And the other crop that I really love to grow, but mostly because I fail at it every year, is, is spinach. I just have a very mineral soil, and I can't grow spinach no matter what I do. I try so hard, try everything, this thing, that thing, more compost, more water, less water, water, and no matter what I do, I fail every year. Um, but I really enjoy just trying it every time. So I think it's 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 both those are, are my favorite crops to grow. One because it's really positive and the other because I just can never quite get there. I love it. That's, that's that whole loss thing. You're just like reveling <laughs> in the loss. You know? Keeps me in touch. Keeps me humble. And if you could go back in time using your, using your superpower <laughs> uh, and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Um, well, I would probably tell myself, um, you know, when I first started, things were things were kind of black and white. You know, organic farmers weren't conventional farmers, you know, and what we were going to do is very different than what conventional farmers were going to do. It took me a long time to do certain things like side dress. Because <laughs> that was something that a conventional yeah. farmer would that's do. That's conventional farming, yeah. Yeah, that's conventional fertilizer. I'm not going to buy fertilizer. I'm just going to compost. And uh, it took me about six or seven years to realize, you know, if I get some linseed meal, and I put it right down next to my tomatoes on my last cultivation with my beautiful little side dresser. I got some really nice tomatoes growing. So, you know, having an open mind and being open to things and not being so rigid in general is what I would tell my younger self. But that particular thing always stands out as like, you know, don't be so sure that what you, uh, what you conceive of is right. And fertilizing has proven to be really useful. Dan, I think this has been a really fertile conversation. I, I, uh, I loved going into the detail about the, the CSA and kind of that, well, that whole, ex that, that shared loss in addition to the shared risk and the importance of that. That's, that's one that's going to, I'm sure I'm going to be thinking about that a lot over the next few days as I'm driving around. Uh, really, really fantastic insights. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to uh, talk to you. I, I, I love listening to the podcast. It's a great addition. I listen to it on my tractor while I'm working and 
it's so much fun to be able to hear from other people about what they're doing. And, you know, one of the things about farming is we just don't, you know, it's so hard to get off our farm and do things with other farmers and hear about them. So I'm glad to participate because I really have enjoyed listening to other growers. Glad to be part of it. Thank you so much, Dan. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for doing this. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 26 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Kaplan. That's K-A-P-L-A-N. We'll post a link there to the spreadsheets that Dan and I discussed towards the end of the show. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. It's worth noting that the show does take a substantial amount of time to produce and no small amount of money to keep on the air. Our sponsors, like Vermont Compost and Fertrell for this episode, and Osborne Seed Company, Second Cup Media, and Audible for previous shows, really support this work. Accessing their web pages through the show notes and sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement. And of course, so does mentioning that you hear their ad on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guest or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. <laughs>